And what a lot of players, especially newer players, will be saying that when they've recognized some sort of pattern that in other contexts had led to a genuine attack. I'll have a lot of beginners will ask questions of, well, if they take my f7 pawn with their piece and I have to recapture with my king, now my king's exposed. So I didn't want to do that. So I overprotected f7 so they couldn't sacrifice the piece. Where the thought is, yeah, if your opponent wants to give you a piece for no reason and has no follow-up, there's not an attack, you're just piece up. Yep. But if you've seen f7 sacrifices that work, or you haven't known how to play when your opponent made a bad one, and so it looked like it worked, and you start to develop this pattern of, I can never let their pieces even look at f7. And so they'll say things like, well, they had a threat. And the threat turns out to be giving up an entire piece for a measly pawn. It's like, that's not a threat. Throw another attacker on there and it's a threat. You know, throw a follow-up piece on there and that's a threat. But but here, that's not a threat. It looks like one. It fits the pattern. Treating it like a threat is not helpful. In fact, it's actually hurting your goals. (laughs) I'm like, this is such a good analogy, JJ. This is so fucking cool. The one that also came to my mind when you said that is the idea of opening principles. Really helpful when you're learning chess, right? Yes. Awesome. Yeah, you got to learn those. Eventually, you're going to get to the level where if you fastidiously stick to those opening principles and you don't look at the board in front of you, you're going to kind of run out of room for improvement there. So it's another area where we see that that learning was really helpful at a time. Mm -hmm. And so are a lot of these patterns of anxiety or anxiety-provoked thinking. Usually these are really protective and they're actually really useful at a time in our life. But more importantly, just kind of recognizing, okay, where I am now, where I am in my chest level, this is not helpful for me anymore. And I need to add a little bit of nuance or I actually need to do a little bit of unlearning. Like, all right, fine. Sometimes I got to put the knight on the rim. Let's go. Yeah. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios. As we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are we like this? Yeah. I've been thinking for the past four hours since the lesson I taught this morning about anxiety as it relates to this idea of thinking about thinking. I honestly can't wait to see what you're about to say about that. And I don't know if this will surprise you, JJ, but that is something that I talk about with my clients a lot. So I'm curious to kind of see what you say and maybe see what overlaps that has from a clinical perspective or from an evidence-based empirical framework for anxiety. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that for the people I work with who talk about getting anxious at the board or at least exhibit symptoms that my non-clinically trained self would diagnose as symptoms of like generalized anxiety, that they oftentimes jump straight into talking me through their thought process in the game just as it occurred. If they can remember it, they go straight into, well, here this move jumped out. I was trying to play blank. 
And I ruled this out because I couldn't see what to do here. Or I got this far in a variation and then I couldn't find the knockout bluff. And obviously there's nothing wrong with having thoughts. Well, there's plenty of things wrong with having thoughts. But if you have to have thoughts (laughs) during your game, there's nothing wrong with having them. And there's also nothing wrong with documenting them. But then what will usually happen is if I ask a question like, okay, I'm looking back on it. What do you think the mistake was? And they'll usually say something like, well, in this variation, I missed this move or I should have calculated deeper. What I'll often say instead is, well, you're telling me that you ruled out this variation because you didn't know where to go next. It sounds like you're assuming that you have an advantage here, but you never told me you were better and you were looking for a line that proved you were better. So why are you ruling this thought out when you don't find the knockout blow at the end when you didn't think there was a knockout blow at the start? Why are you calculating at this point when you haven't told me whether the goal was to kind of get into a murky position, get out of hot water, stay roughly equal? So all of these things of why are you going down these lines of thought in the first place are absent. And then when you are trying to diagnose any mistakes you made in those lines of thinking, all you're left with is, well, I guess I could have thought harder and longer. But then also they know that they're thinking too hard and long and getting into time pressure. So it can't be that the solution to this problem is burn more time on the clock, but trying to get them to step back and say, well, what was it that you were looking for when you ruled this out? What was it that made you think that this would be or wouldn't be a problem? That's where you kind of see like the eyes glaze over. And the reason why I associate that with anxiety is it's just you're feeling so sucked into that thought, so pulled by that thought. That the idea of stepping back and naming the thoughts you're having or asking whether those are the thoughts that you would like to be having or the only way to look at this just doesn't occur to you and it all feels forced. Am I on to something? I'm just like, I'm speechless over here because just articulated. I'm so attracted. You, <laughs> you, JJ, have just articulated actually a very nice synopsis of exactly how we think about cognitions in the framework of anxiety through an orientation such as acceptance commitment therapy or ACT, which is actually how I orient myself as a therapist. <laughs> so I'm like laughing while you're talking. That's literally what I do on a daily basis for anxiety. Exactly what you just described is how I conceptualize, one, the way that thoughts play a role into a framework for something like the experience of anxiety, but then also how we want to think about thoughts, how we want to evaluate thoughts. And so you did it so differently than most people do it because I was ready to correct you, not correct Uh, you, but kind of give you an alternative framework. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. What am I going to do? Punish you for that? (laughs) Only people who read our Twitter will understand. But No one who reads our Twitter can read. (laughs) But I wonder if your students do that. So let's start here. This is how a lot of people start to evaluate thoughts, especially when they're having anxiety around their thoughts. Uh So when your students are kind of walking you through, here's what I was thinking at the board, here were the decisions I was making, or here were the thoughts I was having. What a lot of people feel tempted to do is really kind of wrestle with the thoughts and try to evaluate the content of the thought. Yes. So like, was this true or not? Yes. Which is very different from, is the thought helpful? 
is the thought adaptive. Yes. And so I just love this beautiful parallel with chess because what you're saying is I actually don't care if that variation that you calculated worked or not if that thought's not helpful in the first place. Is that the calculation you should be making? Right. I think so many people get stuck in the weeds. You can tell me how they get stuck in the weeds for this in chess. Mm -hmm. But this is a way of thinking that actually really paralyzes people in real life. So I'm just so excited to have this conversation now. Yeah. When I have conversations with students like that, first of all, those are some of my favorite conversations to have because I find them really interesting. And it's also where I feel like I can be maximally helpful. And I'm probably helpful at helping you know how to evaluate those kinds of positions in the future or giving you some clues or advice. But ultimately, I'm way more helpful at being like, well, what I can tell you is that as a reasonably strong player compared to you, I wouldn't have asked any of those questions that you are now asking me. So if we can figure out what motivated you to ask those questions, then we can figure out whether you can name that and step back and ask whether those are the right questions to ask here. And if you can do that, then you don't even need to know the answer. Can I ask you, JJ, just to see, is this the connection that you're making with anxiety? Is there also maybe a point that when players are maybe looking at a position and their anxiety starts to go up, Mm -hmm. that could be a factor for why they start asking the wrong questions? Like they're almost thinking out of this fear response or stress response or anxiety response rather than just essentially what the board in front of them is inviting them to ask? Yes, that is completely what I was thinking. I also had a second thought, which is that when they're experiencing this sort of anxiety response, it is harder to recognize that that is happening and to step out from it. And I can see this in my own game too, that when I'm the most... Totally. And just in general, like... I suspect this isn't unique to me, but like when I'm really tired or if I'm like really drained or like the end of a tournament day, that's when I find it the hardest to like step out of those sorts of anxiety spirals or to recognize the thoughts I'm having. And so the way that shows up in my chest will often be that like if I start getting perplexed and out of sorts flummoxed in a late round game that I'm playing, then I'm most likely to look back at decisions coming after and being like, wait, I'm making all of these strange decisions. Why was I going after an attack when I had two undeveloped pieces? Why was I going after an attack when I had several hanging pieces? Why did I assume that this feature on the queen side was the most relevant thing when my king is weak? These are all examples of things that if I stepped back, I could have been able to ask. But in the moment, I found it impossible to step back. So I think part of it might be, yeah, when the anxiety response is heightened, that you will be more likely to start going down the wrong path. But I was thinking for me, maybe I'm always likely to go down the wrong path at first. I'm like a coward, right? The second I see any attack towards my king, I get kind of flinchy. But what I can usually do is step back and assess whether that seems like a real attack or something that makes me flinch. And I don't think for me, the goal is to change those first order thoughts. Like I'm not going to think the right thing. Yeah, but it's just more kind of, I know that there's going to be certain things I'm more sensitive to, certain things I'm less sensitive to, but what I can do when I'm feeling centered is kind of step back from it. And so then for me, the other way the anxiety comes in is more than just it gives you those unhelpful thoughts, but the anxiety makes it really hard to step back and name those as unhelpful or ask if they're helpful. Yeah. (laughs) JJ looks really proud of themselves, which is uh, appropriate. 
I'm just sitting here thinking like, oh, JJ's the perfect therapy patient. I have like a doggy daycare certificate for best behavior that I'm holding up (laughs) that's crossed out and says good therapy student. (laughs) And actually, if you were my client, JJ, I would probably recognize that and hold back a little bit (laughs) Mm -hmm. just so that you don't become too reward oriented. We'll cut that out. But that is something that I might do in our sessions. What reward do I get? (gasps) Do you like dog treats? I do. (laughs) But that is actually totally something that you sometimes have to do because Mm -hmm. you do have clients that respond so positively to that reinforcement. So I start to notice clients come in and they're like, everything went so well. I did everything. I'm growing in all these ways. And I start to recognize, oh, they want to be the A client. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I actually stop kind of lavishing praise on that. And I start actually really (laughs) focusing on where were the struggles and where did you show up not perfectly? I love that. Uh, Those uncomfortable feelings. The fact that you were able to sit in that is actually what I'm excited about. And the areas that you're struggling with, that's what I think is cool. And then they can start to do more of that. Julia, I actually don't think we should cut this because Mm -hmm. I think that's something that will happen a lot is I think you're right. For certain people, at least, it's easier to learn the lingo than to change the behavior. For some people, I think learning the lingo or even learning to recognize it is really hard even after the fact. And like, I'll have this conversation and again and again with somebody and like, they're just so deeply pulled in by whatever thoughts come into their head during the game that the thought of stepping back and evaluating them is still foreign to them. But for a lot of people, I think I do get a lot of, well, I was starting to ask the question, but then, and like, they're trying to frame it in the way that gets the gold star. But then you start to realize like, okay, but you didn't spend a long time on the question or something else didn't work out very well after that. And I, yeah. so I think that is really interesting because, you know, it's not like when I ask all those questions and feel like I have that reflective distance, I certainly play better chess, but I certainly don't play nearly as well as I would like to. And I still think that some of it is there's more work that can be done there. So maybe I am a good model gold star patient to be like, I've just told you all the things you wanted to hear. So now can you push me and find yeah. out what I'm actually still fucking up? And I imagine, JJ, that you could see all the ways that doing that can hold people back from improving in chess. If you're coming to me with, here's all the things you taught me that I did well and I Mm want to get the gold star, we're actually not working on the things that are continuing to hold you back. And there is going to be some resistance to talking about the things that you're struggling with the most. And that makes perfect sense because you don't know necessarily exactly what those gaps are and they feel kind of nebulous or uncomfortable or they're mistakes. So they're bringing up more anxiety. There's Mm. all these reasons that those blocks to talking about it exist that are so valid. But we, you know, as the coach or teacher or therapist, it really is, I think, such an incredible skill to hone to actually be able to help people see what those are and also sit in that in a space that feels really safe and comfortable. And I I wonder in what ways that kind of shows up for you and your coaching. Yeah, I think that a common thing that I see coaches say without finding the language to explain why they're saying it will be if somebody says something like, I was worried about, insert random move, rook c3, to snap back and say, don't tell me the move, show me the variation. But I think what they mean by that is not just show me more than one move, think deeper. Although they don't really use the words to explain this. I think what they mean is show me what idea this move is addressing and how it accomplishes it. 
Show me that it is worth accomplishing. Show me that it succeeds in accomplishing it. And show me that you do not have responses that accomplish something equal or greater to it. And until you've done that, you haven't given me a reason. You've just spouted out a random move. But then what a lot of people will do is they'll spout out a random variation that maybe is missing forcing moves or thematic ideas. Or if the point was they don't have time to take your pawn on the queen side because their king is weak then you can give me five variations that don't address the fact that their king is weak and you haven't, quote, given me the variation. Rather than ask you what is the better way that the student could think about the question and come at it and maybe even address their own anxieties around the question, which makes it hard for them to think about the mistakes they made or to think about the correct variations, I'm going to ask you a different question, which is what could the coach or the teacher in that situation do differently Mm-hmm. How could they ask the question differently or ask a different question I love that. to actually get at a more productive way of thinking about how to evaluate a position in that instance? Oh, what a badass question. What I try to do, instead of saying, show me the variation, it's, a, it's almost the opposite. Is It's not show me the variation, not the move. It's even It's taking it up to a higher level of abstraction and saying, show me without giving me a variation. What is it in your own words that they are trying to accomplish with that move? I'm very excited about that, JJ, because I feel like that accomplishes two things. Okay. Two very important things that the other question misses. One is you're actually just bringing attention to that question. And that actually might give that student some insight if they're kind of having that moment of lack of recognition. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Very gently turning on the light bulb. Hey, this is an important question that you were not aware of. So now you're asking the correct question, but there's that extra layer of insight, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Cause that's definitely part of it is I want to be challenging the idea that we should be approaching every position like a tactics problem where we can mm-hmm. try and just calculate our way through to the quote best move. Right. And we know on some level that that's not correct. I feel like when we first start mm-hmm. learning chess, we're all kind of doing that. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I can speak very personally how quickly I realized that this sucked and like this doesn't <laughs> work at all. And actually, maybe this is a good case for Blitz. When mm. I was playing a lot of correspondence chess, oh. I never really had that awareness that pure calculation <laughs> is a terrible strategy. I hadn't been playing chess long enough to really see a lot of patterns yeah. or to have those intuitions. Where do pieces kind of want to be and what themes am I looking for? Yeah. And when I started trying to play Blitz, it was such a fucking disaster. Right. Because you can't calculate. You're trying to play like a really slow computer, but while computers can evaluate quote unquote thousands of moves per second, you can do like one every 20 seconds. 1000%. I honestly flagged for so long because I couldn't really find the right move quickly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was trying to calculate. It doesn't work. Like we need these heuristics. We need to have that deep, rich understanding. The calculation is actually such a beginner crutch. Yes. So it's interesting to see people think, oh, that's how I become a grandmaster. Yeah, you sound like somebody who spent too much time with me because I completely agree with that. Yeah, like yeah. grandmasters might still calculate more than 1600s, but there are certainly lots of things that 1600s calculate that are just filling up their mind and making it harder to play a decent game. Yeah, and... I wonder if we can actually even tie this back to sort of our overarching theme here of the role that anxiety really plays in influencing the way that we think about chess or play chess in those moments. 
Because I wonder for some people, that calculation is either actually a crutch or at least a metaphor for a crutch for anxiety in the sense that it feels really productive yes. and it's giving me something that feels familiar. Like this is concrete. Okay, uh-huh. I can see what would I play? What do I think my opponent will play? And I can calculate two, three, four or five moves out. But what might actually feel more anxiety provoking is saying, okay, I actually have to step back and tap into like a deeper, richer, more, I don't know, conceptual understanding of chess, Mm -hmm. which actually you might not have. And Mm -hmm. so that will create some anxiety. You're like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what to think about. Mm -hmm. And I feel lost in the position. Uncertainty is inherently anxiety provoking. And then if there's an outcome that we're attached to, like not getting beaten by the nine-year-old across from us, that's also anxiety provoking. So I actually think that fits in really nicely kind of with our framework or our theme here, this sort of reliance on the calculation when that is not the right question to be asking. I wanted to draw a really funny parallel here, which can also double as an ad break for our sponsor, which is, I think there's a similar way in which a lot of people take the really hard work for studying, which you can do on a wide variety of strategy-based courses on Chessable, and instead get a bunch of opening materials and memorize a bunch of variations very deep, which you can also do on Chessable, in which... Some of that can be useful and a lot of that can pair really nicely with a lot of great strategic stuff. And some of the courses, I think, do a great job of trying to spell out. I was looking at Alex Banzia's London course recently and like the beginning of every chapter just has clear bullet pointed plans with where the pieces Mm -hmm. should end up and why and why these squares end up weak. And that seems like the kind of opening study that can make those really vague conceptual questions of, well, what is my opponent trying to achieve? Easier to understand if you kind of understand, okay, well, my C3 pawn is often weak in the London C3 or B2. And so those queenside pawn pushes are trying to prod out a weakness that I remembered seeing in the chapter of my course. Okay, great. But it's a lot easier to memorize a bunch of shit and feel like you can check the boxes of how much you've done. And then I think that this is the in-game equivalent of that. It's a lot easier to calculate a variation six moves deep and be proud of yourself or at least feel like you've done something than it is to ask the question, what does my opponent want? So how the fuck should I know? I can't talk to them. I so totally agree. And I there's obviously a place for opening study. We we need to do that, but I there is such a temptation to let that always kind of fill the chess study checklist because mm-hmm. it feels so concrete and yeah. we can check it off. And I love that parallel, JJ. Once we actually have to do the really hard critical thinking, we're gonna make a lot of mistakes. We're not gonna get it right away. It's gonna feel kind of murky. Yeah, that doesn't feel as good. And I I think that that's harder for people to kind of wade into that water. Um, But that is absolutely what needs to happen, to quote you, for us to make those kind of quantum leaps, I Mm. think, in our chess play. The opening study, the tactics, the calculation can really only get you so far. Absolutely. And I think this is something that comes up a lot. And I'd actually be curious. I can tell you my experience with teaching here, and I'd be curious how this shows up in your work as well. Because because this work is so hard and it is so conceptual, it takes so long to set in almost to the point where it can be hard to realize that it is setting in. You're not going to go from being you know, the 1600 who always relies on their calculation and never steps back to ask that question to the player who always steps back to ask that question overnight. 
Yep. And because of that, it can feel like, well, if that's what you're working on, it can feel like, okay, shit, you know, when I play my Blitz and Rapid online, my rating isn't going up. When I study, instead of being able to see all the progress I'm making, I may be looking at five positions an hour because I'm going so slow to work through them and ask these questions. Or I might be spending an hour going through a game, thinking about each move, what I would play and trying to figure out whether the player whose side I'm playing it from is trying to achieve the same things I was, but differently or totally different things and asking of each move as I go back, well, if they were going for something different than me, is that just a stylistic choice or is there a reason that was more important? Um, Doing that with every turn is something that could take a long ass time, but then as a result, you might exert yourself three times as much and read through one game or like two pages of a book in what previously could have felt much more quote unquote productive. And that leads to a lot of frustration, I think. Yes. Yes. So I guess my question is, I imagine people have something similar, right? Where they can start to be working on stepping back. You know, if somebody comes to you and is like, how do I solve my anxiety or how do I get out of these spirals? And you're like, well, Well, it's not about that. (laughs) It's about, you know, being able to name and step back or something. And then after a few months, if somebody's like, yeah, well, I've started to name when this happens, but I still... No, oh, dude, you're you're, you're like a hundred steps ahead. Okay, okay. We're gonna back up a lot. All right, let's back up. Okay, so up. we can start to draw a picture of how I would 100% respond to a very similar experience in therapy. Great. So, JJ, maybe we can even use you as an example. Use the fuck out of me. <laughs> um, Think of me as Maxim Delugi's emails and use me to whatever ends you would like. <laughs> And I'm not going to redact anything. This one's going out totally unedited. I want you to just have in mind, think of an example of something that kind of gives you anxiety. Think about an example that you're willing to share on the air for all of our best friends and family, you, the Chessfields pod fandom. And maybe you can describe what that experience is like for you and how you tend to respond to it and the thoughts that come up. Yeah, absolutely. This is easy because literally this morning, I had a series of errands that I wanted to check off before we started recording. And it was pretty clear that the timetable would work out to give me lots of time between each one. And then one of them took an additional 50 minutes on top of that due to incompetence of other parties. Dog. Well, Flo's incontinence was part of the issue, but it was the vet's not even incompetence. Something took a lot longer than I was expecting it to and a lot longer than even my like generous buffer window of like, and this can even go 20 or 30 minutes longer and it would be yeah. fine window. And then- Shit comes up. Shit, well, not for flow. That was- <laughs> right. I did that on purpose. I'm actually really good at wordplay. <laughs> oh, and then because I didn't think this would take that long, I knew my phone was low battery, but I figured that it would last until I got home so there's no need to charge. And so now I'm like, crap. My phone has died and I had told Amelia I was coming home soon and now it's going to be a long time since she's heard from me and that might be something anxiety provoking for her because like it sounded like I was about to come home and it's a five minute drive. Where am I? Is everything okay? Why aren't they responding? I don't want to be doing that. Also, the other dog, Zoe, was getting groomed at the time and I was waiting for a call from the groomer. Uh, a lot of logistic things piled up and I started to worry that I was making things harder for everyone else and tried to reorient the rest of my day as to take things that I needed for myself, such as eating lunch off the table, to try and minimize my imagined impact on others. 
Okay, perfect. How's that? So you've described a really stressful experience and you described the way you reacted to it. So when you were talking about today, <laughs> like what you imagine students doing, that's exactly what we're doing in therapy too, mm. which is just the first act of noticing, which is one, what is the experience I'm already having? So in this case, what are the thoughts that are happening for me? when I'm feeling anxious, but we cannot take that for granted and assume that people are doing this. So for you, you described, I'm worried about the people around me and mm -hmm. I'm having some self-blame. Like what could I have done to prevent this? Mm -hmm. And what could I do differently? And this sucks. And just for the sake of this example, and I suck. Yeah. JJ didn't really say that, but let's just extrapolate and say there's like a little bit of self- We'd get there eventually. Yeah, there's some guilt there and there's these layers. Great. So we've recognized the thought pattern. So maybe in therapy, we start to notice, JJ, that whenever you feel like a lack of control in your schedule, like I'm running late for something, I can't do what I want to do, I feel really disoriented, you notice your stress always goes up. Mm -hmm. And you sort of say, I'm living this life where I think I just need to be more flexible. I want to be able to respond more adaptively and kind of regulate my stress thermometer even when I feel thrown for a loop and my schedule kind of goes out of whack. It didn't say all of that, but let's imagine that that's how it progresses. The first step is to recognize what are the thoughts that are already happening. And maybe in therapy, we're also kind of trying to tap into like, where do those patterns of automatic thinking come in? Like why, JJ, when the vet is 50 minutes late is your first thought, like, what could I have done different? How is this my fault? Mm -hmm. um, maybe not being born into a Jewish family as we both were. Hi, help. mom. Love you. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I do um, love you. <laughs> I do too. JJ's mom. Just kidding. My mom too. She doesn't listen. But that can be helpful <laughs> to first stop the extra layer of shame that we get, which is like the shame about the shame. <laughs> like, mm. why do I think this way? Okay. So we can talk about why these patterns exist. But the next step, this is so important, this is really where I was trying to get, is that we also have to recognize that changing that pattern of thinking is not like a light switch. You have been thinking in this way for such a long time and almost so quickly. Like this is so mm -hmm. automated. You most of the time are actually not even recognizing that the thoughts are happening. They're happening so quickly. Sometimes I have to convince my patients that there even is a thought, but mm -hmm. sometimes those things are happening so lightning fast because it's become such a pattern and we evolutionarily are designed to recognize patterns and respond quickly. Like we find these heuristics that's adaptive. If every time you were standing in the road and a car was coming and you had to think the car's going this fast, if I don't move at this time, I'm going to get rammed in the face. Then my anxiety response goes up because I figured out that I'm going to die and then my legs move. We're all dead. So like patterns are good, but we start to recognize where the patterns actually are not helpful. So that's literally just the first step is seeing the unhelpful pattern and sort of validating for our clients. It's there for a reason. And it's also not a light switch. So the process of changing or kind of unlearning that pattern of thinking is going to take a little bit of time. But now that we've noticed it, we can start to do that work. I wanted to jump in right there to draw out a couple parallels to what's going on in a lot of people I work with chest thinking. Oh my God, I can't wait. One of the things that I hear a lot is, well, I needed to defend against their attack or like now they have an attack on this or they're threatening blank or something like that. And what a lot of players, especially newer players, will be saying that when they've recognized some sort of pattern that in other contexts had led to a genuine attack. So I'll have a lot of beginners 
will ask questions of, well, if they take my f7 pawn with their piece and I have to recapture with my king, now my king's exposed. So I didn't want to do that. So I overprotected f7 so they couldn't sacrifice the piece. Where the thought is, yeah, if your opponent wants to give you a piece for no reason and has no follow-up, there's not an attack, you're just piece up. Yep. But if you've seen f7 sacrifices that work, or you haven't known how to play when your opponent made a bad one, and so it looked like it worked, and you start to develop this pattern of, I can never let their pieces even look at f7. And so they'll say things like, well, they had a threat. And the threat turns out to be giving up an entire piece for a measly pawn. It's like, that's not a threat. Throw another attacker on there and it's a threat. You know, throw a follow-up piece on there and that's a threat. But but here, that's not a threat. It looks like one. It fits the pattern. Treating it like a threat is not yes. helpful. In fact, yes. it's actually hurting your goals. <laughs> I'm like, this is such a good analogy, JJ. Yes. This is so fucking cool. The one that also came to my mind when you said that is the idea of opening principles. Really helpful when you're learning chess, right? Yes. Awesome. Yeah, you got to learn those. Eventually, you're going to get to the level where if you fastidiously stick to those opening principles and you don't look at the board in front of you, you're going to kind of run out of room for improvement there. So it's another area where we see that that learning was really helpful at a time. Mm -hmm. And so are a lot of these patterns of anxiety or anxiety-provoked thinking. Usually these are really protective and they're actually really useful at a time in our life. But more importantly, just kind of recognizing, okay, where I am now, where I am in my chest level, this is not helpful for me anymore. And I need to add a little bit of nuance or I actually need to do a little bit of unlearning. Like, all right, fine. Sometimes I got to put the knight on the rim. Let's go. Right. Or an example I love is I love when people will comment on a totally useless move in the opening that wastes time saying, to develop this piece. And they can't point yeah. towards, okay, so on the square, you've taken the bishop off of C1 where it had never moved onto, I don't know, E3. So now it's moved and now it's in that perimeter outer center. Check the box, right? But if you can't show me what it's threatening, what it's defending, what lines it's opening up for other pieces or anything, have you developed it or just moved it? And when you're learning chess- <laughs> Wait, I love that. Oh, yeah. JJ, I love that so much. Oh my God, that's really good. <laughs> The difference between like, have you actually developed the piece or have you just moved it? Like, yeah, holy shit. Yeah. And so and so or similarly, you know, in a certain kind of position, maybe the knight on the rim is more relevant to what's going on, but you're breaking the principle or in some slow. I was thinking like this was a hard lesson for me to learn when I played more like King's Pawn Spanish and Italian games is that Bishop on C1 is actually pointing on a pretty long diagonal directly to H6. The opponent usually castles. They've often played h6. So the bishop on c1 is actually attacking the king side and threatening bishop takes h6 when it hasn't even moved. It's blocking in your rook on a1, but there's only one, maybe zero open files early in the game. So you haven't developed your rook. It's blocked in by your bishop. So you feel like you have two pieces you need to develop, but one of them actually already has somewhere to go, the opponent's king side weakness. And the other doesn't have the lines it needs to be developed no matter where you put it. So spending a turn on just bringing that piece out to check the box might be a rather big waste of time because as soon as your opponent pushes h6, giving your bishop a target, your bishop is developed even though you haven't moved it. I mean, it makes so much sense when you say it that way, JJ, everything clicks and it seems so obvious, right? Yeah. But it's it's not obvious when you're stuck in the more rigid pattern of thinking like, okay, here are the rules for chess and here's how I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And that actually helped me feel really confident when I was first learning chess. And I was 
literally playing, I don't know, A3, B3, C3, <laughs> right? If that's where you're coming from, actually, yeah, moving the bishop instead of developing it, we're, we're doing real good. And like, and, like, um, and like Julia said, it's like, it's like, it's not like these rules aren't incredibly useful in lots of contexts. So it's about yes. finding this nuance. Like, yeah, I mean, even if you're playing decent openings, there could be entirely different positions where, yeah, you know, there's two open files for two happy rooks. And the fact that your bishop is still on C1 means you're limiting not just the bishop's potential, but the rook on A1 is out of the game. So in that case, not bringing the bishop out could be criticized as not just lack of development for one piece, but just criticized as lack of queenside development. And then you get into a different position where there is no way to develop the queenside quickly. And you tell yourself, well, I'm developing the queenside because I don't want to get in trouble like I did in that last game where I was criticized for lack of queenside development because of this exact same fixture of these two pieces on the exact same squares. Yes, exactly. And I, I'm just so glad that you made that point and zeroed in on how important that nuance and that context is because that is literally everything so to kind of circle back to okay now how in therapy are we thinking about conceptualizing our thoughts and what parallels can we draw to chess in therapy the way that we're thinking about our thoughts is not evaluating are they true or not because in chess is a perfect example where we can see how unuseful that is if you're not that good at chess and your calculations are bad or wrong or not useful in this context, yeah. it actually doesn't matter if the line you calculated is right, it's the wrong line. And yeah. we think about thoughts very similarly in therapy. So instead of analyzing the thought for its content, we are going to take that step back. And I just, it blew my mind, JJ, when that was exactly how you described what you were hoping your students would do in chess. Same thing in therapy. This is really hard. I actually really want to recognize that, especially if someone is in a state of anxiety, mm -hmm. how difficult it is to do this because you have to recognize that the thoughts are happening um, and get distance from the thought. And that can be really hard. So that's a skill people have to practice. And we can talk about how to do that. But the real step here is noticing what thoughts you're having and potentially a more useful question to ask rather than, oh, is my thought right? Is my calculation right or wrong? Well, it's the wrong calculation. Potentially, the more useful way to approach that assessment is to say, is this thought helpful? And I can't even tell you how often I repeat this. <laughs> All my clients will hear this almost every session. Is that thought helpful? So I work with eating disorders and I have a lot of clients where we're working on a lot of things with body dissatisfaction. So a lot of people might be sort of asking, like, is my view of myself dysmorphic? I'm doing a lot mm. of body checking. I'm looking in the mirror mm. a lot. CBT actually might have that person say, is the thought accurate? So you see yourself one way. Is that how you look to others? Mm. Is that an accurate projection? I actually think that that is not a useful question to ask. Rather, <laughs> we're going to look at that thought. I don't really care if it's true or not at all. Yeah. Is that thought helpful? And what do I mean when I say helpful? And I'm really curious to see, JJ, how you'll answer this in the context of chess. Yeah. But just really briefly, when we're thinking about it in therapy, is a thought helpful is purely based on context. And that context, when I'm working with my clients, it really boils down to two things. Does that thought help you move closer toward the life you want to live and to be the person you want to be? That's going to vary person to person. Like, what do you value? How do you want to move through the world? But that's the question I'll kind of direct my clients to think about. Yeah. So I'm really curious to hear 
how would you start to think about whether a thought is helpful in the context of chess? Yeah. So this is cool because this might be one way in which things aren't exactly parallel. Sure. Is the way that the I mean, because I can think of like what the analogous questions, analogous questions would be. But the thing I would usually say is first, let's just name that we don't know whether it's helpful or not. And kind of we're almost going to I've mm. never used this phrase before, but we're going to evaluate or look for a line or calculate, but we're doing this almost under probation. Ooh, so like, I love that. we're going to spend some pre-allotted amount of time calculating to see if it goes anywhere. Because if it feels like, well, you know, this move of theirs, it's given me a feeling. I don't know if that means it's a real threat or not. I can articulate what would make it be a threat, but I don't know how to compare that to the other things that I could achieve in this position. So I don't know whether it's worth spending my move rebuffing it or whether it can be ignored in favor of other stuff. So maybe the first question I might ask is if I give them a couple moves in a row, what happens? And if it passes that test and something bad happens, and then I just play a couple moves trying to achieve my own ends, what happens? And if something bad happens, then I've mm. learned, oh, okay, this has moved from, this is just something that I feel out of many things that could be relevant to now this is something that needs to be taken seriously. And we're taking that thought of accomplishing this goal with this capture is something that needs to be addressed in my next move or series of moves. Alternatively, but that is actually adding like another layer of thought, right? Mm. JJ, it's taking that pause and it, it kind of goes back to the way we started this conversation. It's almost having the meta conversation with yourself. Right. What types of questions are suited to the position? So you're saying first you have to look at the position and kind of analyze can I go straight into the calculation or mm -hmm. what is really required here? But that's kind of like an extra layer of thinking. Right. And so the way to try and make it feel not so much like it's that extra layer is to say, I'm going to let myself do the calculating, but I'm just going right, to so name. It's almost like a trial and error. Exactly. But I'm naming yeah. that I'm doing it in a trial and error way. So the thought like of looking at this of elimination. position. Yeah. Like the thought of looking at this position and not calculating or figuring out, quote, what they want before calculating anything, even if in a 90-30 game, that feels way too hard. I'm not nearly stoic enough to just sit there, look at a chessboard, but not calculate variations. No, 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 I'm, I'm going to calculate. But if I can sort mm -hmm. of name, okay, I don't understand yet whether this is the most important thing or not. So I'm going to poke and prod some ideas in my head for a minute or two. And see if my conclusion is, oh, yeah, if that happens, I'm fucked. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if it passes that test, then I've said, okay, cool. Now, what would make me happy is finding a series of moves that avoids those specific upshots I just named. What were the exact moves that did caused a problem? What were the weaknesses that were exploited by those moves? And now my candidate moves are things that address those things I've just found. Yeah. And I... I imagine that kind of going through that sort of mm. line of security checks might feel kind of daunting at first. Yeah. But I imagine that as you practice that, as you recognize that here are the things I want to be looking for, and with the help of a coach, for example, okay, I'm going to build that skill of thinking about it in this way. I imagine that becomes more intuitive and just gets easier and easier. I think so. I think so. But the one thing I want to say to make it even easier is I'm a huge proponent if the first thing that you apply this like trial and error or kind of probationary period of analysis to is your gut feel, that's fine. 
if you can name that you're doing it, if the first thing you want to calculate is whatever, quote, looks scary or looks like an attack, okay, go for it. But before getting sucked down the rabbit hole, just like spend a minute. And if you spend a minute on it and you're like, cool, I gave them five moves in a row to further this attack that scares me. And I haven't even figured out how they use those five straight turns to further the attack. Now I need to go back and figure out what else might be more important because it sure is fucking this. But if instead it's like, cool, I gave them five moves in a row and I made it. Now I played five moves in a row to further my own attack and I'm still mated. Okay, cool. Now I have elevated this from a feeling that is worth like thinking about to, yeah, this looks terrifying. And whatever I do has to address the problems that come up here. But again, you didn't even have to start from, I just know what question I should ask first. Start with your feeling, but just name that we're testing the feeling to see if it holds water. And only if it does, do we fully start looking for candidate moves and trying to solve. So what I'm doing in that initial calculation is just like, if I play straightforward moves, if I more or less ignore it and do whatever looks good, do they achieve something great or not? And because if the answer is if not, then that means what felt like a threat wasn't a threat. And what people would want to do instead is say, well, that rook takes c3 move looks scary. So I'm going to start calculating what are my five best candidate moves. It's like, no, now you've just wasted so much time before you've even told me if that threat was real. That was actually something I was going to ask you. When you were kind Mm -hmm. of describing what that process looks like, Mm -hmm. I was going to sort of check with you to see if I had it right to sort of think about the way that process could look is first, I am going to look at the position I've been playing this game and I'm going to and I'm going to kind of do that gut check. Like, what's my feel yeah. for the type of questions I could be asking? And then I'm going to start. That becomes priority number one. I'm going to kind of go down that rabbit hole. But I'm really going to do that with the awareness of mm-hmm. if this is not the right rabbit hole, if I notice that I'm going like down, 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 and I wanted to be going left, 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 whatever, then I also have that higher lev- level cognitive ability to take the pause, step back, and reroute myself. Yes. And That just made me feel so excited because that's actually very parallel to exactly how we would describe that in therapy. It's this idea of psychological flexibility. And I've actually Mm -hmm. talked about that on this podcast before. And there's modes of therapy that essentially postulate that if you have psychological flexibility, that's it. You've really come a long way and you're going to have a lot of the peace and contentment and emotional regulation that you're looking for. It's so fundamental to our mental well-being. So it's cool to hear that in the context of chess. And I just sort of wanted to nod to that because you started saying, you know, I actually don't know how parallel these are, Mm. but I'm going to push back a little bit. The mechanism is totally different, right? Like, okay, we're going to do this gut feel trial and error. And so maybe in my example, if we're trying to assess if a thought is helpful, we're going to be thinking about, okay, you've identified in therapy that you have values or goals. You mentioned that you want to move towards body neutrality and freedom around food and exploring your interests and your passions and your hobbies in a way that isn't centered around what you eat or your appearance. Those are your values. Those are your goals. Does your thought about the way you look in the mirror move you closer to those goals? Like, is Mm. that obsession helpful? The answer is so glaringly no. So instead, we move towards finding a different rabbit hole. Great. What can we do instead? And the techniques for that actually could be useful here. We could talk about that too if it's necessary. But I love that example, JJ. And I actually see a lot of parallels. Yeah. So I guess maybe like the order of operations is different in the sense that their last move means I don't necessarily know what the goals are anymore. And so the first thing I can do is if their last move gives me a gut feel that maybe they have a scary threat now. 
I'll trial and error my way to see if the goals now are stop the threat at all costs. But if I don't do that, then I either ignore a possibly real threat or I just trust my opponent that the threat is real. Or in a sense, we still know what the overall goals are. And so we're evaluating whether the threat is real or not based on some overall features. But I love the way that you would sort of direct someone in that sense of, okay, start with your gut feel. Yeah. There's nowhere else to start, really. And I, what I love about that so much, and where I actually really also see another parallel in therapy, is we might say something similar in the sense that we don't want to demonize our anxiety or our thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's okay if that's your first automatic thought. And we don't want to get stuck in the analysis paralysis of, what thoughts should I be having? Yeah. Or, or um, oh, that's such what a do I point. need? Yeah. What do I need to do in yeah. this moment? It's totally okay to let your mind go where it goes. And that is something that I actually work on a lot with some clients is this idea of our brain is having a ton of thoughts. And some of them are good. And some of them are literally garbage. And that's hard for people because we feel so conflated with our thoughts. Yeah. They feel very tied to our sense of self and our identity. Our brains are coming up with a lot of useless stuff that we can not actually ours. just let. Yeah, no, not you and me. No, just you've like the... seen our podcast Twitter. It's pure, pure gold. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gold mine, people. But yeah, so we can let those float away. And actually, when we're very fused with our thoughts, that's really detrimental mm. to our emotional well-being and our psychological health and that flexibility. So I just love the way you start the direction there. Yeah, follow your gut. I actually think that that's another really solid parallel with the way that we would sort of conceptualize that from a psychological model. And what you said there that I loved was this idea of like, don't demonize your thoughts or falling into that spiral. That's something I'll see a lot where I'll see people say something like, I realize that asking the question, how do I stop their attack might not be the right question because I wasn't sure if their attack was real. And then I didn't know what question to ask instead, which is also fine. And that's awesome awareness, right? And so the next thing is, so then I just panicked and played a defensive looking move because I at least knew how to address the attack. Even though I just said, I don't believe in their attack. At least I knew that this move addresses this thing that I didn't believe in. And otherwise I have to admit that I didn't know what I was doing. And then so I just played the move. Hi, JJ here from Chessfield. If you want to plug the holes that we've left in your repertoire when it comes to anxiety, you'll have to tune in next week. Now that we've shown you you have a problem, we'll tell you how to solve it, but you have to wait seven days. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where 2 plus 2 equals 5, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a 5-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate yeah. to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. <laughs> at ChessProblem. Yeah.